0: One of the vantage points of being up here when we're singing is I get to see you, <laughs> and uh, I, I love to watch people when they worship, especially when their heart's in it. And if their heart is in it, then their body gets into it. And and this morning, uh, and I, and I love watching Brad Speed worship every Sunday morning that we're together. And this morning, uh, I I looked over and saw his his children, his older kids, chuckling and and i looked down the the row and brad had logan and was just beating on his head while we while we were singing and and uh jamie grabbed him and said, hey stop you know you know and i'm thinking yeah you know if he keeps doing that he's not going to get much taller you know <laughs> We uh, we also tonight are going to have the senior recognition. We want everybody to come back. All of our our seniors in high school that are graduating are going to be recognized and honored tonight. And uh, as you know, Cody does a great job in putting together a program where we recognize this this great moment in these kiddos' lives and remind them tonight as well that they are part of something really big. They're part of a church family, and wherever they go. We go with them. Our hearts go with them. Our prayers, our thoughts, our love, they're always, always, always going to be a part of us and us a part of their lives. And um, we're also going to be looking this morning at Genesis chapter 22 in Hebrew, the Akedah, or the binding of Isaac, which uh, is a, a, a difficult passage as as Josh read it to us, I mean, you get a, a sense for the drama and the tension that's happening in this text. It's, uh, it, I wrote my first um, big-time college uh, uh, theology paper on this very passage. Uh, I think I made a C-plus on it. And uh, so hopefully I've learned a couple of things about it in the last 35 years. And one of the things I've learned is that we need to pray before we get into Genesis 22. So let's bow our heads, let's join our hearts, and let's ask God to bless us. Father, we're grateful for all the ways that you take care of us and all of the ways that you come you come into our, our our awareness that that you as the Creator, the the possessor and the creator of the heavens and the earth, that you also have created and possess us. And that you are a God of love and of holiness and of mercy and of compassion. And that in all of your righteousness, Father, your love comes to us from so many different angles every day. And what we ask for, Father, like Abraham, is not only when our faith is tested to to be faithful to you, Father, but also to always look for the ways in which our faith can be informed every day. And to this end, we ask, Father, that you give us eyes to see and ears to hear. And we ask all of this in the name of Jesus and all the church said. There's a a story I heard a couple of decades ago about a graduate philosophy uh, class in one of our uh, big universities, famous universities here in the United States. And I don't think it's true. I think it's probably an urban legend. But it's just a great story. It makes a great point. The, the, The story goes that there was this graduate level philosophy class that was just, it was legendary for how grueling it was and how tough it was and on top of that your final grade depended on the final exam and the final exam was the only test that you took during the semester so everything kind of spiraled down into this one test and so the kids in this graduate class were studying all the time they were memorizing they were writing they were staying up late at night they were getting ready for this exam and so the day arrives for the exam to be taking place. Everybody gathers in the classroom. Professor walks in and says, You have two hours. You have 120 minutes to take this exam. Please take out paper. Take out a pencil. And I want you to answer this question. One exam, one question. And the question is, What is the answer to the question why? Well, a kid just started writing feverishly and started downing the Red Bulls and coffee and all of that. Just, I mean, they had two hours to write everything they knew about philosophy, the history of philosophy, as it pertained to the question, why? And there's this other cat in there that's he's about 30 seconds into this test, turns his paper over, writes a couple of words, gets up, hands it, takes off. Well, a couple of weeks into the next semester, a couple of these kiddos, they recognized, ran into this other kiddo that took the test so fast, and they said, you know, man, that was, that was the worst test I had ever taken. I mean, I wrote for two hours. I wrote everything that I knew, and I got a C grade. What did you make? I mean, I noticed that you didn't take very long answering the question. What did you get? He goes, man, I got an A+. Plus. And they go, what in the world did you write down? he said, you know, the answer to the question, why, is this. Why not? And he got an A. (laughs) Not all tests are that easily answered. Right? When it comes to tests, not all tests are that easily answered. Think for a moment of this, this scripture from Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Let's say that together. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Let's say it one more time. Get it deep, 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 deep down in our hearts. Without faith... It is impossible to please God. Now if that's true, and it is, then how do you know your faith is pleasing to God? How do you know that? Well the answer is not always what we want it to be. We want it to be about going to church on Sunday mornings or maybe even Wednesday nights. We want it to be about reading the Bible. The reality is this though. One of the the ways that you know that your faith is pleasing to God is when it's tested. And the reason is this, that tests are revelatory moments. Tests are revelatory moments. Think for a moment about what a test really is. A test does nothing more than to draw out what's on the inside. A test does nothing more than draw out what's on the inside. I mean, think about it. A a test is bigger than test-taking in school. Uh, it's bigger than just regurgitating what it is that a professor or a teacher has has told you in the course of a class. It's more than just writing answers down on a piece of paper so that it can be qualified somehow with a letter grade or a number grade. Uh, The reality is that a test is always going to reveal what you have on the inside. Now just a quick clarification, biblically speaking about tests and temptations, because sometimes they can look alike. When God performs a test... He's doing so to bless and to grow and and to help a a person of faith, a person that is struggling to follow Him, to flourish in their faith. But then there's the, the, the temptations that come from Satan, and they might look like one of the tests that God has given us, but when Satan is the author of that temptation, it is always to destroy. Think, for instance, of Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4, Jesus has been baptized, right? He's been baptized in the river of Jordan. The Spirit of God has driven him out into the wilderness. So he has been baptized. That is, he has aligned his life up with the will of God. He is going to do, he has committed himself to God's will. And immediately upon making that decision, he is driven out into the wilderness by God's Spirit. And how many days is he out there fasting? 40 days, right? He's out there for 40 days in the wilderness. Some years ago, we were in Israel there is a, there's a a, a a wadi called the wadi Kelt that goes west of, of Jericho. And it's a, it's a desolate place. It's a rocky place. It's a dangerous place. In fact, there were a couple of times when we were walking along this kilt that I thought, you know, if you're not careful, you're going to slide down. And so much of church history and church tradition has said that this is the place where Jesus went for 40 days fasting and going without food. And you know what happens on the 40th day, right? Satan appears... And Satan is going to press Jesus for what he believes to be true about the Father. And what he says is, you know, God is going to make you the redeemer of the entire world. That is why you are here. You are the redeemer of the entire world. But God the Spirit has led you into the wilderness and is allowing you to die of starvation. You've been out here for 40 days. You haven't eaten anything for 40 days. The body's beginning to work against itself. God is in the process of destroying you. Don't trust God. You can't trust God. He's trying to kill you. He's starving you to death. You, if you're really the son of God, can turn these stones into bread. Do it. And Jesus, as hungry as he is, at the end of 40 days of going without food, says in Matthew 4, verse 4, It is written, man shall not live by what bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now what Jesus is doing is more than just quoting Deuteronomy 8 and verse 3. He's doing more than just regurgitating Scripture. Jesus is declaring with his own life, that there's something more important than the Luan played at Luby's, and that is to trust God, and to trust God's Word as we live before Him in this life. Now this is where we find Abraham in Genesis chapter 22. Standing before the Word or the call of God. And we'll see it. You can break this passage down in all kinds of ways. I, I want to do it very simply this morning, and that's to look at it as a testing and, and an informing. That Abraham's faith is tested and Abraham's faith is informed. Well, some years ago I was working with a guy by the name of of Kim's self, one of the the most brilliant, intelligent, and and probably one of the best preachers I've ever heard in my life. And he talked about when he played football at ACU back in the 1970s that he had a fellow on the team that, that spoke with a little bit of a lisp. And he was always saying that you have to face every challenge. You have to face your problems. You have to face life. But because of the lisp, it always came out as you have to faith it. And Kim always said that that's exactly right. When it comes to problems, tests, challenges, when it comes to life, when it comes to ordeals or circumstances that are not all that easy to deal with, what do you have to do? You have to face it, but you also have to faith it. And that's where Abraham is. Abraham's faith is now going to be tested. And the text begins with these words, sometime later, God tested Abraham. Now this is not the first time that Abraham will enter into a period of testing. The reality is, is that every faith quest encounters multiple tests. Just because you enter one faith test in this life doesn't mean that you're never going to enter another one those that have been living in the faith for a long time know that it it seems at times in life that you'll get out of one ordeal only to enter another test only to get out and to enter something else it just seems like they they stack up or they pile up on you one right after another and that's what abraham's figuring out about life at nearly a hundred years of age, he's he's figuring out that every faith quest, every person who's ever made the decision that they're going to grow close to God and not just grow close to Him in terms of knowledge, but they're going to live according to His will, that they're going to encounter multiple tests. There was a, an ancient Torah a scholar by the name of Maimonides who lived towards uh, he died about the beginning of the 13th century, so he lived a long time ago. By the time He said that you get to Genesis chapter 22. Abraham in Genesis has already gone through nine tests. The first one, leave your your home in Ur of the Chaldees. Leave all of that security. Leave your family. Leave the culture that you know. Leave the homeland in Ur of the counties is the first one. The second is he finally makes it to the promised land. And what does he find in the promised land? He encounters a famine. And the test is whether or not the land is going to be able to sustain and support him. Coupled to that is the third test, which is the beauty of Sarah in the eyes of the Egyptians. Right after that is the battle of the four kings and his effort to rescue Lot. Then there's the Hagar situation and the birth of Ishmael. One of the big tests circumcision at an old age then there's the king of gerar or abimelech who is wanting sarah as his wife there's the dismissal of hagar and then finally the estrangement with ishmael as he is he is um, he is sent out from the tents chapter 22 tells the story of the 10th test and it's absolutely horrific It's disturbing. And it's a reminder that sometimes the last tests are the toughest. Think of all of the calls that Abraham has received from God. They always have sort of the same elements to it. You need to pack up your things and you need to go. You need to to go to a place that I'm going to show you later. And the third element is you've got to offer up something. In this particular case, or in the first case, it's you know, you're going to be giving up and leaving and offering up the safety of family and the familiarity of culture. This time it's something horrific. God tells Abraham that I want you to offer your son Isaac as, as a burnt offering to me. Now Robert Alter, who does a translation commentary on this text, does something that I think really helps bring out what's happening here. He says, in this line that you have from God, you you actually can kind of hear in the background Abraham's responses. God says to Abraham, take your son. And Abraham says, I have two sons. Your only son. Well, I have two sons that are the only sons to their mother. The son you love. So I love both my sons. Isaac. And in verse 2 he says, Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain. I will show you. As a person of faith, what do you do when the command of God appears to contradict, when the command of God even appears to destroy the promise of God? Do you take matters into your own hands and turn the stones into bread? Or do you trust the goodness and the wisdom and the faithfulness of God? You see, one of the things, if you don't walk away from anything else this morning, you walk away with this, is that faith is an incredibly serious thing. That faith is not something that is a sideline Hobby in life, that faith is not something that I attend to when I have time to attend to it or when, you know, maybe the fancy strikes me. Faith is not something that is separated from any part of life. Faith is all there is in life. Faith is an incredibly serious thing because without it, Hebrews 11, verse 6, it's what? Impossible, say it with me, to please God. So in verse 3, Abraham receives this word, he gets up very early in the morning, he loads up the donkey, gets the servant and Isaac, cuts all the firewood, they take off, they travel for three days, they finally arrive at the place, Abraham leaves the servants, has Isaac carry the wood, and he himself carries the fire, and what uh, another scholar, E.A. Spicer, says, you know, this is not a knife, this is a cleaver. And he builds the altar, and he places the wood And he binds Akedah. He binds Isaac and raises the knife. When the angel of the Lord calls out to him, Abraham, Abraham. And Abraham replies, Here am I. Do not lay your hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God, because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. And it's at that point that Abraham sees a ram caught in a bush and he sacrifices it to the Lord as a burnt offering and God reiterates the blessings with which he will bless Abraham with. But the question, especially for those of us who are parents and parents of sons and parents of sons that we love very much, is how did you do it, Abraham? I mean, really, deep down, how did you do it? One thing I know to be true about the life of faith is this. Some tests require everything we know and believe about God. Which means that one of the most important things that we do as a disciple of Jesus of Nazareth is to apply on a daily basis our hearts and minds. We press all of our energies into expanding our knowledge of who God is. That, that it's, it, it's more than just reading the Bible in terms to, to, to find out what commands we need to be doing and examples we need to follow. We need to read the Bible in such a way that God is lifted up off of the pages and becomes the most real, most dense being in the universe. That we read the Bible in such a way that we expand our, our knowledge base and our understanding of who God is as the supreme value of the universe. That's what Abraham's doing. There is no law that has been written down for him. He only has his relationship with God. He only has what his interactions with God and the faithfulness of God and the coming through on the promises of God, what all that means to him. That's all he has. He doesn't have scripture. There are no scriptures. He just has the relationship. And some tests that we go through require everything we know and believe about God. And you see this in the text. That God is not abstract. That, that God is not some theory or some philosophy. He's not, you know, he's not been turned into something small that can fit into a box for those moments in which life is okay and we're doing things the way that we want to do it only to pull it out and God is way too small when it comes to these kinds of moments. What Abraham has is a relationship. And you see it. Abraham tells the servants that he and Isaac will worship God, and then they're going to come back. He tells Isaac that God will provide the lamb for the burnt offering. When Isaac asks, "Hey, I, I see," and notice the poignancy of this. I mean, read the details. Read slowly. I mean, Isaac, Isaac is carrying the wood, and he says, I, "I've got the wood, and you've got the fire." What is it that he doesn't mention? The knife. He's a young lad. And that thing scares him. And, the, and the, just the poignancy and the intimacy of this text, I, they're walking up to this place, and God, uh, uh, Abraham says, God will provide the lamb. Abraham is bringing everything he knows and believes and has experienced about God to bear in this event. Some years ago, um, a great Bible scholar uh, has written some some incredibly important commentaries to my own understanding of god's word a fellow by the name of ben witherington and uh, one of the most unbelievably tragic things happened in ben and his wife's life life they got a phone call one night that their daughter, who was living living as a single woman in another town, another city, had been found in her apartment dead. no explanation yet no no, no explanation as, as, as to what happened. And he and his wife suffered and suffered and suffered. As you can imagine, anybody who has lost a child suffers. in That ang- agony and that anguish, that suffering is intense. But at some point, Ben and his wife looked at each other and brought to bear everything that they knew about God in the depth of the pain. And they said, we may not have any answers, but we know this. God is is not the problem. God is the answer. Abraham's bringing everything he knows and believes about God to bear in this event. And he believes that that God can provide life for the promise that he has made to, to, to Abraham in a covenant that he can provide life for the promise even beyond death. We have this inspired commentary on this particular passage in Hebrews chapter 11 where the writer says, By faith Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had embraced the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son even though God had said to him, It is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham brought to bear everything he knew and believed about God. He reasoned that God could even raise the dead. And so, in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from the dead. Now, it would be really tempting, I think, here to think that, you know, we have this wonderful story about Abraham, and we do. But that's what the story is all about. And it's not. As incredible as the story is as an example of someone whose relationship with God was so intense that he could see the resurrection, the story is about God. If if the real point of the story was Abraham, then the name of the mountain would have been the mountain in which Abraham passed the test. But that's not what it's called, is it? It's called the mountain of the Lord who provides, or the mountain of the Lord who sees, which brings us now to this last point, and that is, in all of this ordeal, Abraham's faith is being informed. God says, offer your son as a, as a burnt offering. Incredibly dreadful words to hear, and yet it's really a lot worse than that. I'm, I'm, I'm really indebted to some of the writings of Edmund Clowney, and uh, some of his books on this, he brings out this point that I think is true. God does not say, Abraham, murder your son. He doesn't say, Abraham, pull out your knife and murder Isaac right here on the spot. God, God is not asking Abraham to murder Isaac. God says, offer him as a burnt offering. Now some might say that you know you're really kind of splitting hairs there, preacher, because it involves a death... But there's more going on here with the request to offer Isaac as a burnt offering. And this is the, this re, it's this request that makes it all the more horrific for Abraham, I think. One of the things that's absolutely clear to Abraham because of his interaction with a God who is holy and a God who is righteous is that Abraham knows without a shadow of a doubt that he lives in a fallen world, a place where humans die because of sin. And and centuries before, there is formal legislation in documents like Leviticus and Deuteronomy for things like tithing and what it means to be the firstborn and for sacrifices. Abraham is already living and doing these things. And although Abraham speaks of going to worship God on Mount Moriah, sin and the shedding of blood are already being linked together. And the real horror is not just, um, the real horror is that a firstborn son will be a sacrifice for sin. Even his sin, as Abraham himself knows that he is not without disobedience to God's will. Why does he not argue with God? Here are all of these people in Sodom. Am I going to withhold from, from Abraham what it is that I'm going to do? He goes, no. I'll let Abraham in on it. And Abraham stands before God, and they had the conversation that we talked about last week. 50, 45, 40, 30, 20, 10. He's arguing. He's making his point. He assumes the law, but he is he is... He is, he is making his point for Sodom. Why does he not do that here? Why does, he, why does he not make the argument here? It's because he understands that he himself is not without disobedience to God's will. And Abraham is not just blessed because he trusts God even when the command seems to, des- to destroy the promise, but because of what is seen on that mountain. The name Yahweh Yireh can be translated on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided or on the mountain of the Lord it will be seen. And perhaps both are meant. But it's here that I think Abraham's faith is being informed and deepened about God who will supply the land. You know, there's this funny little passage over in the Gospel of John where Jesus himself says, Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. I think that's a reference to Abraham's experience on that mountain. I believe that Abraham's gladness was on that day. He and Isaac alone on Mount Moriah... That they would see that God would pay the price of redemption but it would be with another only beloved son that would not be spared. And what God required, God was going to provide. And this place, Mount Moriah, became the site of the building of the temple, 2 uh, Chronicles 3, verse 1. And it's in this this, this area that one day John the Baptist sees Jesus near Bethany. He's walking and he says, there's the Lamb of God. He says that twice in John chapter 1. And it's near this temple and it's on this mount, near this mount, that God's son, like Isaac, will carry wood only in the form of a cross so that the redemption of all of mankind can be made. That sin will be overcome. And with sin being overcome, death would be overcome. So that there could be life, resurrection life, forever and ever in the hearts of people who live every day in faith of everything they know and believe to be true about God. They take that into every place they go, into every circumstance, and live and live as, as, as people of faith. We have to take advantage of every moment that we're given to be able in our prayers and in our study and our conversations and in our listening and in our readings to, to deepen who it is that God is to us, to understand His ways. To be able to say like David that I think about your ways and I think about your laws and these things are a delight to me. I will follow you all the days of my life and it's that information that is going to be a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. That's why it's a light in it. It's because it's not just the memorization of commands and examples and things to do and things to follow and laws and legal things, but it's growing closer and closer and closer to this kind of a God who provides and sees and sees and provides. Ben's going to lead us in a song right now, and maybe there's some ways that we might minister to you to help you grow closer to God and to pray with you and to pray for you and to counsel you and to study the Word with you and to help you to understand the greatness and the vastness of this God who is not the problem but is the solution. Is the solution to all of the things that we encounter in this life and if that describes you this morning these shepherds are going to be down here at the front come down and talk to them as we stand and with all of our strength we praise God in song that stand and sing uh.